Thank you for being here. It's always uh, fascinating when you have a topic like this at 2 o'clock on Thursday afternoon that, the, that people would come for that. It says a lot about where you are and uh, maybe what you're dealing with, either in your own life or walking with somebody else. And uh, we're going to talk about both things. So uh, I want to begin by us reading together the, the handout you're given that's called God of Grace. This is kind of to help all of us, including me, get a little bit centered and focused on uh, the one that's most important and uh, before we delve into our topic. So if you would read this with me. God of grace, I give you thanks for being not just a God, but for being the God of grace. For friends, old and new, who bring sparks of joy from you to me. For family, those who give me grounding, and constant love in all ways. For loved ones no longer here, yet still alive in my heart. For fellow travelers, encouragers in the struggles of life. For sustenance and nurture, shelter and clothing, my daily bread. For questions and yearnings, generating meaningful searches for you. For the ancient text, overflowing with words of renewal and purpose. For life, breath, body, spirit, emotions, and the intellect to be able to express grateful awareness of it all. For being human, full of foibles and successes, sorrows and joys. For your unending loving companionship in the darkest of hours, in the loudest of celebrations. God of grace, I give you thanks. Amen. Thank you uh, for joining us today, and uh, we're going to delve into the deep end of the pool here on uh, talking about some of the heavier things that we as human beings and those of us in our faith journey are not immune uh, from this topic. In fact, uh, our whole uh, faith is based upon the death uh, of our Messiah, correct? Um, a lot of us love to celebrate Easter. We don't want to necessarily talk about that Good Friday thing, do we, as much. We don't, we don't want to stay there. I've heard people that even during a communion presentation say, I don't want to talk about the death of Jesus. I want to talk about the fact that he's here and resurrected, which is good, but you don't get to the resurrection without a death occurring. And um, so that's kind of the premise of where we're going today. We have to be able to engage this topic uh, many people have accused us in the Western world of being death-denying, youth-oriented. Everything uh, uh, is, is about living forever. We do all we can to stay uh, like, we, like we are. And, uh, however, my right knee reminds me in the steps here at Pepperdine that uh, aging continues. And, uh, you know, it's, it's part of it. Uh, if you need a really good ref referral for a book for... Uh, Second half of life, it's Richard Rohr's um, Falling Upwards, Spirituality for the Second Half of Life. That was free. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about other than I'm aging. So, so we're going to talk a little bit on a personal level and uh, how we walk with others are sometimes uh, in better ways than others with people that are in grief. Oh, no. Don't do that. I'm not a fan of technology. There we go. Uh, Alan Wafelt and others who have studied uh, quite a bit on, on thanatology and, and grief uh, 
have, have talked about there's three terms that we use in the English language that are kind of interchangeable. But when you look at the root word of where it comes from, it really adds a meaning to it. Uh, one is bereavement. Bereavement is, is to feel as if you've been robbed. Anybody ever had something taken away from you? Did you like the feeling? No. Me either. If you've ever had your house broken into or anything taken from you that, that was uh, you thought yours on a more permanent basis, uh, that's the root word of bereavement. Grief is the internal feelings that we have when we feel robbed. So, and then our reaction <coughs> to it. And then mourning. Mourning is a communal uh, expression of grief and bereavement. I'm a big believer now that things like funeral services and memorial services are extremely important uh, in the grieving process. I am a hospital chaplain by training. Sometimes I talk to people uh, that say, I don't want a funeral for me, don't make a big deal, uh, just, just take me from the hospital and put me in the ground or cremate me and no service. And now that I am older and a little bolder, uh, sometimes I will say, you know what? It's not about you. The service is about those that are left behind. Uh, you cannot take that away from people that need a chance to express in community their, their grief. Uh, I, I just think we are built to need that. Uh, it's very biblical to have services. Uh, Jesus was present, you know, at, at uh, the time the woman was walking, or they were taking the body of her young son in the city of Nain. Uh, it's, just, it's just important that we find ways to remember people. Uh, otherwise, it's as if you were insignificant and nothing, nothing counts. And nothing could be further from the Christian faith than to say that your life didn't count because you are a child of God. So it's just kind of helpful. We can use those interchangeably, and there's not a problem with it. I think it just helps to understand a little more uh, how those three can interact. So here we are today. Being a caring presence to someone in grief is difficult and a much-needed gift. Faith travelers can and must be a loving source of hope. It's real easy for me, even in my profession, to talk myself out of going to a family who's just lost somebody to death and to say they need to have their time alone. They need to be by themselves. And sometimes that is true. But in actuality, this is a community uh, event. And we do have a right to be there. In fact, I think as, as believers in Christ, we have a responsibility to walk with people in effective ways, uh, not to talk them out of their grief, but to journey with them through it. Uh, the, the term sojourner means to journey with, to go along beside somebody. Uh, not to fix them, but to walk beside them and let them be that. So we're going to talk about the dynamics of grief, helpful and not so helpful phrases to say. Uh, remembering how effective caregivers listen more than talk in times of grief. Last January I taught a short course called Ministry in Times of Crisis on the Abilene Christian campus. I get to teach that here occasionally. Uh, if I beg enough they let me come every once in a while and be here. Um, but this, this particular class had a, a young man, well young, he is young, in his 30s, uh, from Haiti. And he runs an orphanage for 51 uh, children there. And he was going back to school to get his degree so that he could be a better minister in that environment. 
the last day of that week, I, I've had several speakers come in. Uh, Mike Cope's wife, Diane, came and as a guest speaker and talked about losing their 10-year-old uh, daughter, Megan. Uh, I had a former college roommate of mine had lost his daughter at age 12 uh, to ovarian cancer, of all things. Uh, I have another college friend that came in who deals with clinical depression and how that has affected him and his faith walk and what he's done with all of that. So we had story after story come in. Well, this, this man on the last day of class had been rather quiet, and he stood up and he said, I, did, I took this class just to learn how to help other people uh, in, in times of crisis. I didn't expect to be reminded of my own grieving stuff. And I said, well, if I put that in the syllabus, nobody would take the class. <laughs> but it just happens as you begin to hear stories, our own stories get, uh, get resurrected, don't they? They come to the surface. And he began to talk about, I have every, every student was to present a devotional based on a crisis passage. And he began by saying when he was seven years old in Haiti, his mother was whisked away to a hospital. And uh, a neighbor went the next day to take food for her in the hospital. That neighbor then came back and said, your mother won't be coming home. And don't you grieve. A year later, his sister, who was a year apart from him, died, and right after that, his grandmother died, and he said, every time it happened, I was told, don't grieve. And then he jumped ahead, and he, and he said, this was 10 years ago, uh, on January 12th, 2018, he talked about 10 years ago, there was a massive earthquake in Haiti. He said, everybody was going about their business, it was just a regular day, and this earthquake came, and it wound up killing 100,000 people. And he said he was looking for someone from his church, and he was literally having to walk through the streets over dead bodies to get there. And he said, I really hadn't thought about how that impacts how I interact with other people, but how could it not? And I, I thought to myself, you know, we as a nation just don't get it sometimes, do we? Grief on that scale? Uh, we're pretty insulated from that kind of stuff. Uh, but the message, do not grieve, may have been told to him for a variety of reasons, including survival, you just got to keep going. I'm from uh, German and Irish and Scotch heritage, and in, in so many ways, in West Texas, I was told the same thing. You just keep going. Don't spend all your time grieving. We don't have time for that. You got to keep, keep moving. Anybody else ever heard that message in some way? Um, so it, it can be one way, even in the church, um, let's move forward and get through it. I have heard preachers declare at the beginning of a, of a funeral, there will be no tears in this service. Because this is a great victory for God and we will only be here to celebrate that victory. And I thought when I heard that more than once, you know, you probably never read John 11, that Jesus wept thing. <laughs> You know, maybe somebody should have tapped Jesus on the shoulder and say, what are you crying for? Uh, don't you believe in the resurrection? Uh, the incarnational story of Jesus is so impactful to me because of that. And do you remember what it says when it says that Jesus wept, what the people around said? See how he loved him. They weren't surprised. That's what love does. It expresses it. So when we try to talk people out of expressing their grief, we aren't necessarily following a biblical mandate. We may be trying to protect ourselves because we get real uncomfortable when people grieve out loud. And uh, 
I, I get that. So, familiar with C.S. Lewis, married later in life, a great apologist, uh, but his marriage uh, to a woman named Joy ended with a cancer diagnosis that came pretty soon after they married, and he was so in love with her that when he lost her to death, it, it really shattered him, and he wrote a book called A Grief Observed that's basically his personal diary of how he wrestled with this grieving thing and this this God that he had spent all this time talking about and broadcasting about and that God has, uh, God's great megaphone is suffering and that's how he gets our attention. And now it wasn't working for him personally. And he makes this statement when he's talking about grief, I thought that I could describe a state making a map of sorrow. Sorrow, however, turns out not to be a state, but a process. You ever try to fix things by going one, two, three, let me get this all over with? Um, would that grief were that way. But if you came here expecting to hear that, uh, you're going to be sorely disappointed. It is a mess, and it's a messy process. Many of you are familiar with Cooper Ross and her uh, pivotal work in making uh, grief one of the topics that, that the whole world could talk about a little bit more openly, including the medical world. And she has what's called five stages of grief um, that have been used many times as touchstones. And it's actually very helpful. Uh, it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. My only argument, and, and, uh, and actually Cooper Ross wasn't saying this, is that when you use the word stages, it sounds like a checklist. Oh, got that one over with. Cross that off. I'm moving on. If you've ever been in intense grief, you know it's not that way. It is more like a roller coaster, in and out, in and out. Any of those can surface at any time. And uh, it's, it's just amazing that sometimes we try to put this process that was put into us by God, uh, first to love and then to know what it's like to lose at love, that there is a grief that doesn't easily uh, get fixed. Though sometimes well-meaning people try to fix me. Uh, even now. So let me talk about my personal experience with grief. This is my wife, Carol. Uh, Paula's your roommate. You may remember her from college, Paula Mars back there. Yes. So you remember. She was my roommate, absolutely. She, yes. My best friend. Yeah, you see? You claim that. Um, Carol and I dated uh, all through college and married. Um, she was smarter than me, so she graduated in three and a half years, and I had to stay on a little longer. But, so we married after that, and we were married for 33 years. She was a type 1 diabetic, was insulin dependent from the age of four and a half. And uh, for 50 years, she lived with that, managed it well. She didn't always think she did, but uh, I often told her. She was told as a child she wouldn't live to be past 40. Because when you were diagnosed in the late 50s with that, it, it was treated quite differently than it can be now, and, and the technology has improved so much. Uh, but you couldn't test your own blood sugar and uh, all the things that you can do now and, and monitor yourself a whole lot better. I still have the equipment uh, from her parents from when she was a child. There, there was a test tube with a Bunsen burner and a little pill about the size of an aspirin. And you would put a, a sample of urine in that test tube, heat it up, drop that tablet in and it, that t it would turn one of four colors. And whatever color that was was how much sugar was spilling into your urine 
and that's how you tested yourself at home. It was better than nothing, but not much. If you wanted an exact uh, uh, idea of what your blood sugar was, you had to go to a lab and often wait a day or two to get the results back. When we were newlyweds in Abilene, uh, Carol got extremely ill at one point and went to ketoacidosis, a term I'd never heard before, but it's where the blood sugar is way too high and, and you're in danger of going into a coma and dying. So she was in the hospital there. When she got out, she came through that crisis, but when she got out, the doctor said, you need to go and have your blood tested every morning for the next week. So she would get up in the morning, uh, go at seven o'clock without eating anything or taking her insulin shot and have her drop blood drawn. And one day after she got out of the hospital, she was back at work and the doctor's office called and said, do you feel okay? They were calling at three o'clock. She said, well, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm a little weak, but you know, I've been sick. They said, well, your blood sugar, and I forgot what it was. It was like 600 or 700. It was off the charts. That's what it was at seven o'clock. Who knows what it was by the time they called her because she had eaten and she had taken a shot. So to say that you're able to check yourself at home within 15 seconds and find that out and to immediately address it is quite a blessing indeed. So, so she managed that for a long time and actually did very well. She was a school teacher, loved teaching, that was, it was a passion of hers. Tremendous mother, we have two children. Uh, we chose to adopt uh, because of adoption uh, was considered a better uh, option for us in the 70s. Uh, she was told by a doctor, if you have a child, it will take three years off of your life. Uh, so again, some of that's changing now, but that's the world that we lived in. The last two years of her life, though, um, were very, very difficult for her. She actually walked for a month on, on a leg that had two broken bones in it right above the ankle. She had so much neuropathy, she was in intense pain, but she was told by a doctor twice that you have arthritis in your feet. When in fact, when they x-rayed above the ankle a month later, a different doctor, uh, there was two cracks across and she'd been walking on it that long. You know, most of us wouldn't be able to do that or, or wouldn't do it, uh, but it just indicates she was having cardiovascular problems and nerve problems. Uh, all kinds of things were just going wrong, but the most significant thing was she went on uh, dialysis the last year and a half of her life because her kidneys shut down. And I actually helped give that dialysis at home. The do her nephrologist says, I want to try this machine to see if we can use it in our clinic. <coughs> I'll say, if you look at my badge, it says chaplain. There's nothing on there medical. I don't know anything about this and don't want to know it. But he said, we can train you and it'll, just, it'll be something I think you'll find worthwhile. So we did that three times a week, three hours each time in the middle of going to all these other specialists and doctors. So. The short story of that, people would come to me and say, well, isn't it great you get to do dialysis at home? I said, well, have you ever tried that? You know, you, you, you know if you gotta, I know what they were saying. It was better than maybe going to a clinic, but it wasn't great. It, it's quite a responsibility. The medical world puts a lot of responsibility on families these days to do things uh, that sometimes we're just not trained to do. But she finally uh, succumbed to it. She passed away uh, in September of 2007. So it's 10 years ago, 10 and a half years now. And there are days that it's as fresh as if it were last week. And then there's other times when it feels like it's, it's at a safe distance. I'm not feeling it. As, it's not nearly as raw, uh, nor should it be at this time. But it's there. And there are times I get these trigger reminders that just bring it right back to the surface. Holidays, birthdays, 
uh, this past, uh, I guess it's November, I decided I was going to clear out a box in my closet. I thought, this is a good project for me. Shred all these tax papers that were done. And it was from the year 2006. Didn't think a thing about it until I started shredding them. 2006 was when we were in the middle of all these doctor visits, hospitalizations, and dialysis. And I had a sheet of paper that listed every, piece, every medicine she was on. She's like on eight medicines besides the insulin. And I looked at that, and I thought, you dummy. <laughs> It, was, it took me back on an emotional basis, just like it was, it was yesterday in that sense. It didn't stay with me, but it reminded me that'll always be a part of my story and my experience. And many of you have, can, can identify with that. You know what it's like to have things that bring it all back to you. Uh, so since then, uh, since Carol's death, I have also experienced these family losses. Her father, Fred, died a year later. My mother died a year after that. Six weeks after my mother died, my younger brother's wife died in uh, 2009. Uh, my father has died. I lost my, uh, two of my aunts and one of my first cousins. My family is being reinvented because of death. And the reason I know that is I have three siblings, and we don't always get together like we used to. You know why? Because when this woman called and said, now what day are you coming for Thanksgiving? That sounds like a question. <laughs> you quickly found out it really wasn't a question. It, it, was a, it was a command. It was a directive. And you better have a really good reason if you can. Well, now that she's gone and my dad's gone, uh, we sold the farm that had been in the family since 1929. We don't have a gathering place, and we're all scattered. We're all going in different directions. So we have to be intentional about getting together. Uh, this past summer, we finally got together, all of the siblings, and my kids and grandkids got to meet some cousins that they'd never met before because we haven't got together in that long. Uh, that wouldn't have happened if my mom was still around. So families get reoriented. We had not had a major death in my family for decades. And then all of a sudden, it's like one after the other. The interesting thing about my dad is he was 93 when he died. Gladys, his, old, his sister, was two years older than him. And then they had an older sister that was 100. They all died within six months of each other. And we're all going, you all live this long, and you decide just to all check out together? How does that work? And it wasn't that they were negotiating that. It just happened. But uh, that's uh, the way it is. Once in a while we get reminded, and if you want to know why sometimes we don't want to talk about funerals or memorial services, or end of life issues like filling out a durable power of medical attorney and all of the things that need to be done, it's because we don't like being reminded of this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, on my better days, I'm aware of this and I'm in touch with this, but there's a lot of days I'm thinking, wow, I got a long way to go. If I make it like my dad to 93, well, I'm still in middle-aged. Well, that's really not true, but that's what I can tell myself. <laughs> but there's no guarantee. I'm not guaranteed the rest of the day or tomorrow, which can be very sobering. It can also be very freeing. To realize that that's not just that's not just a sorrowful topic it's like okay so what what do I have to live for it helps me to value the day that I have 
the days that I have, to use it well, and to know that death doesn't get the final answer. It just doesn't. Uh, it seems like it does, and it's, to me right now it seems very permanent because of what I've been through, but I believe it's not permanent. It doesn't do that. But sometimes we have to be reminded. I want to show you a clip from a movie that was done in 2010. Nicole Kidman and some other actors is called Rabbit Hole. It's, it's about a very dysfunctional family. Uh, if, if you're into dysfunctional family films, this one is, is for you. <laughs> it's actually very well done, but it, the, the premise of the story is they had, it's a young couple. Their four-year-old son is killed running after the dog in the street. And it shows him trying to put the pieces together in very different ways, both as husband and wife, and as an older, the, the mother, Nicole, the woman who plays Nicole Kidman's mother, is, had lost her son to a drug overdose 11 years earlier, and he was in his 30s. And she's always trying to compare her story to Nicole Kidman's character story, and it causes real rift. At the end of the show, they take the boys' stuff, and they're putting it in the basement so that they can sell the house. They had come to that term, uh, to that decision that that was the best thing to do. And this clip is from when the mother and Nicole Kidman are talking about what it's like to lose someone. And she opens with, does it ever get better? Exactly, but it's what you've got instead of your son. So you carry it around. I think it's a helpful analogy. To me, that works. Uh, one of my best friends was Sister Alice Potts, who was 35 years a chaplain at MD Anderson, and she would often say, you don't get over grief, you get through it. 
That preposition change is important. You don't get over grief, you get through it. So if your role as a caregiver is to try to help somebody get through it, you're giving them a gift. If your goal is to try to help them get over it, it's not going to turn out very well because you've got an agenda that can't be met. If it's a significant loss, that loss will be with that person the rest of their lives. That story will always be there. Yes, you can move on and you can move forward, uh, but to, to deny that that ever happened is really not healthy, good, or biblical. It's there. It's part of the story. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the process of grief, and, and I'm going to share with you the chapter titles that come from Granger Westberg's little book. It, it was actually just reprinted for the 50th year, I think last year, and it's simply called Good Grief. Uh, and he talks about grief being a waving process and that you can come in or out of some of these or all of these at any time, either fresh or, in my case, like 10 years later, there's times when I can still dip back into them. So uh, let's talk about that a little bit. First one, we're in a state of shock. What does shock do for us? What's the purpose of shock? You ever been in a car that didn't have good shock absorbers? With all the bumps around here in Pepperdine, that, that would be kind of bad. So. What does shock do for us? you have any thought? Yes? Kind of helps you, uh, your body adjusts till your brain can get around it. I like that. Helps your body adjust till your brain can get around it. It kind of buys you a little bit of time to accept the unacceptable. Shock is when you just feel detached from it. If you've ever felt shock, and very personally uh, for me it occurred the night that Carol died. I had gone home at 2 in the morning. The nurse in the hospital said, I'm watching her. You go home. She's stable now. Uh, we'll call if there's any problem, but uh, shouldn't be. And I was going to come back at 7 in the morning. That had such trouble getting Carol to sleep because she had been in so much pain, which was a new experience, that I didn't even wake her up to tell her I was leaving. So I go home, I live about 20 miles from the hospital, and get home, uh, go to sleep about 3, and at 4.30 my phone's ringing. And it was that same nurse who had told me uh, that she would call. And she says, Mr. Fry, your wife has stopped breathing. You know what the words were out of my mouth? What do you mean she stopped breathing? Now I've looked back on that, I thought, I'd been a hospital chaplain at that point for 25 years. Do you think I didn't know what that meant? I knew what it meant, but it was just like you said, my brain wasn't going to go with that. It was like, uh-uh, this is, that's not true. It buys us a little bit of time till we can kind of get our heads wrapped around. We've got a lot to do here, and we've got a lot to cope with, and we've got to reinvent ourselves, and I don't think I can do that, so I'm just going to check out. You don't do that consciously. It's an unconscious, I think it's a God gift buys us a little bit of breathing time until we can come back into it. So uh, if you're working with somebody who's in shock, it's probably pretty early on uh, in, in the process. And sometimes you just got to let people get through that. They will come back around to reality. It just happens. Uh, one time I, was, I got called to a children's hospital across the street from where I work. And it was a young man that had open heart surgery and it had gone fairly well and then they had called me to be with the family before the doc, the surgeon was going to come in and tell them that he did not live, an 11-year-old son. And I never will forget when this doctor walked into this waiting room, 
he told them, well, we lost him. That was the words out of his mouth. And as soon as he said that, the mother stood straight up. And she just stood there and started teetering. And this doctor just kept talking. He was talking about the medical things that had happened and what went wrong. And I'm going, she's not hearing a word you're saying. Uh, she, she just had to go into her space for a little while. It, it, was, it was a perfect example of what she had to do. Uh, she didn't care about the medical reasons at that point. And she got later to where she did, but that was her initial reaction. When, they got, when the doctor got through talking, uh, she sat back down and then the dad got up and walked out and said, I got to get out of here. And he walked to the staircase. And there was three people that followed him thinking, I guess that he thought he was going to throw himself down the stairs. I don't know what they were thinking, but he, that was his shock reaction. He heard the doctor out and then he said, I, I've got to detach from this. And so it was two different ways to express shock, but it was shock. Uh, very understandable. Second, we express emotion, you know. Uh, expressing emotion is a big part of grieving. This is where it gets messy and uncomfortable if you're with somebody. Um, and sometimes we try to calm people down, you know. Don't cry, uh, don't, uh, don't yell or scream, uh, all kinds of things that, that go on. It's a natural reaction, again, to trying to accept this unacceptable news that the person is gone. And we learn how to express emotion, I think, in our families of origin. How your family grieved is, is what you learn. Now, you didn't sit around the kitchen table and say, now, when we lose somebody to death, this is how we're going to do it. At least my family didn't. I'm sure yours didn't either. But I can remember when a grandparent died listening to the adults and what they were talking about and how they were expressing it. That gets embedded in us, and that's our first reaction to grief. So sometimes we can learn beyond that how to express emotion, but some people go very silent. Uh, that's their emotion. They turn inward. Some people wail. I've seen people uh, lay on the body and beat on it and say, you can't go. You, you can't leave me. So it can be any kind of expression. Any of that is okay. Uh, if, if you're trying to stop that, you might want to pull back and say, just, just let it be. It, it, it will be okay. God is with us. And then this one, feeling depressed and very lonely. If it's a significant loss, there will be sadness. If that's a better word for you, we'll use sadness. But depression is a good description of when you feel abandoned by the person that you love dearly. If it's a parent, if it's a child, if it's a spouse, if it's your best friend, if it's somebody that's extremely close to you, there will be sadness if that person is gone and that's, that you're trying to adjust to the fact that they're not there. After Carol died, I remember coming out here the lecture after uh, she died, which would have been uh, 2008, I guess. I think I saw Paula, and I thought, oh, I got to call Carol and tell, tell her I saw Paula, because that's normally what I would have done. Uh, and then the reminder came, oh, I can't do that. Uh, that was as natural to me as anything, and I still was having to learn the fact that she wasn't there to, to share any kind of news with. It's still an adjustment. There's times that I have to kind of shake my fist at her and say, you left me with this mess here. Uh, hello, uh, we're supposed to be working on this together. And uh, she kind of smiles and say, I'm okay, thanks for asking. So. <laughs> but it's very lonely. Sometimes you have to learn to do things that if it's a spouse that you did as a couple uh, that you now do alone.
you can experience physical symptoms of, dis of distress. That can mean all kinds of things. For me, I was exhausted. I didn't know how tired I was until after Carol's death because we were in crisis medical management mode and we just kept going. Um, so weariness is often a part of it, not just, just psychic, but physical, just tired. Some people don't eat, you know, at funerals and stuff, they always bring out all the food. Some people don't want anything to eat. Some people overeat. Uh, so all kinds of physical things. And, and I think there can also be an identity with the person who died sometime. If you had somebody close to you that died of a brain tumor, the next time you get a headache, what's the first thing you're going to think? Oh, it could be a brain tumor. A chaplain friend of mine that actually works with me, his dad died of, of a heart attack in the Panhandle of Texas. And about three months later, he started having these pains. And he said, the first thing I thought of was, I'm going to die just like my dad died. So he went to the doctor, and he had a hiatal hernia. The pain was real. The source was not. He said he knew it probably wasn't that, but that's, that's just what we naturally do. We gravitate towards that. Not sleeping well is also a part of it. Um, we do not sleep well when we're in raw grief, and, and that's costly too. So all kinds of uh, physical symptoms can show up. And also it's very true that the immune system gets suppressed when you're in grief. Some people get a lot sicker than they would in grief than they might have otherwise because you're spending a lot of your energies just trying to get through the day. So uh, to be aware of that is helpful. We can become panicky. What's panicky sound like in grief? Panicky, yeah, go ahead. Breathing challenges. I'm sorry? Literally a breathing challenge. You can't breathe. Yeah, a breathing challenge, yes. Uh, I just, uh, when I would say I can't do this, and I'd get all panicky, and, and, and literally sometimes your breath, sometimes it was doing income taxes, or filling out insurance forms, or going to the lawyer to settle the estate. I'm going, I just can't, sometimes it was doing a load of dishes. I would literally say, I can't do this. And what I discovered was it was okay to say that, and it was okay not to do it. I had to learn to manage the energies that I had to get done what I could. Now, Carol Fry taught me well, you never, ever go to bed with dirty dishes in the sink. <laughs> I've looked for that in the Bible. I haven't found it. But she was convinced it was there. So she trained me. And uh, so what, you know, after she, she was gone and passed away, that I, I stayed with it. I mean, I didn't always do the dishes when she was around it. That kind of came my way after she was gone, all of it. But there was times I just, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. But I'd get up and do it just because of, uh, you know, I didn't want to have to hear about it for the rest of eternity about why didn't you do the dishes. <laughs> so she also had a great sense of humor. So I hope you're okay with me laughing about this. But, but. Panic is when you get this feeling of, I, I'm not equipped to handle this. I just don't think I can. That doesn't last forever, but when you're with somebody who's panicky, if you can just be a calming presence with them and say, you know what? You can get through this. You just don't have to get through it right now. You've given them a great gift. Give them a little space. Do what you can. I'll help you with what you can. And then we're going to let the rest go. Put it in, in segments and pieces. Uh, not a bad way to live life anyway, is it? Feel a sense of guilt about the loss. What would guilt feel like in grief? What, what, say it? Relief. Relief. Because sometimes you feel relieved the person isn't suffering 
and that you're not having to walk with him 24 hours a day, if that's been your walk. So that can be it, and then you feel terrible that you feel this guilt about that. It's not that you wish them dead, but you do feel this sense of relief. That's exactly right. What other kinds of guilt? Wonder if you could have done something about it. Yeah, second-guessing yourself. Could I have done something different? Should have gotten to the doctor earlier, or I, I should have listened when they said this, or I should have. Say it louder. Or change doctors. Yeah, or change doctors, uh, any kind of thing like that. Yeah. Out of survivor's guilt, it should have been me. Survivor's guilt, good term. Why was it her and not me? Uh, sometimes spouses feel that. Parents that survive their children feel that a lot. Siblings that survive a sibling spouse. Why was it him or her and not me? It's, it's, it's very normal and significant. Why, why them and not me? Uh, so, yeah. And when people are expressing this to you, again, if you're the caregiver, rather than immediately try to talk them out of it, maybe just let them sit with it a while. You know, what we want to do, when I hear somebody talk this way, I just want to, you know, I have this fix-it mentality in my head in this little toolbox, so I just open up my toolbox. Here's how I can fix you. Let me, let me offer you all this. Uh, Carol Fry taught me on that, too. She was a school teacher, and sometimes school teachers come home with stories. I don't know if any of you are in the education <laughs> world. She taught third grade for many, many years, and she'd come home with, you won't believe what they're asking us to do now. Those kind of things. Or, um, I was teaching a uh, in the middle of teaching a class, and this mother came in and starts chewing me out for giving Joe an A minus instead of an A plus on his paper in the middle of class. And so she'd tell me these things, and I'd get my toolbox out and say, oh, you know what you ought to do? Tomorrow when you go to school, you ought to. And I think I tried that twice. <laughs> to which she said, I don't need you to fix this for me. I, I think I can come up with a plan on how to deal with it. I just need you to listen to my story. Could you do that? I said, oh, well, it's what chaplains are supposed to do, but hey, I would. yeah. So yeah, just when somebody is feeling guilt, maybe let them feel it before you try to get into the fix-it mode. And if you've ever had anybody try to fix you, you know what I'm talking about. Most of us don't respond well to trying to be fixed. Being filled with anger and resentment. Now this is a hard one when you're a caregiver. It's very hard in the church to express this. Um, sometimes people would stop me after worship and they say, how are you doing? This would be two or three weeks after she died. And I didn't know how to answer the question because I had all of these things going on. And if I was angry that she wasn't here with me, I couldn't necessarily say that in the foyer of the church building. Uh, I could feel it, but I didn't necessarily say it. So sometimes we're angry literally at the person who died for leaving us, for abandoning us. Now, in my head, I know Carol didn't abandon me on purpose. That was not her intent at all. In fact, she probably hung on longer than she should have in some ways. But, but sometimes that anger is part of it. Uh, you can be angry with medical staff, doctors. They get blamed for a lot of things. Sometimes it's true, and sometimes it's just we've got to blame somebody. Who else can we be angry with? God. Yeah, who set this death thing up to start with? You know, and to do this wrestling match with God, this is where the church really gets uncomfortable sometimes. You can't say that. Uh, really? You never read the Psalms? Uh, talk to some folks that are in the Old Testament world here at Pepperdine, they'll tell you 60% or more of the Psalms could be called laments. 
kind of saying, uh, God, I think you made a promise that you forgot about or shake your fist. Uh, the wrestling with God, the whole Job story. Uh, you ever, you hear the term patience of Job? I heard that all of my life till I actually read the book in college. Read the, the, and the patience of Job, about the third chapter, you're going, whoa. It's not how we normally define patience. Uh, uh, my mom didn't define patience that way. She wouldn't have put up with some of the things that Job said about his situation. You know, like God, I'd like to get you down here and put you on trial. And by the way, I'm going to be the prosecuting attorney. We don't put that in patience. Yet at the end of the book, it's faithful Job. Job is faithful because he's got a real relationship with a real God. Being a parent, I learned when my kids get angry with me, they didn't stop being my kids. They didn't have a choice. They're still my kids. And it really helped me understand when God presents himself to parent to all of us, he gets it. It's okay. Uh, don't hear many times that that's preached, but it's there. We resist returning. What do you think that one means? This is when somebody feels bad about having a good thought when they're in the middle of raw grief. Oh, I shouldn't be having a happy thought. I shouldn't feel good. I'm supposed to be grieving. Which is a very unrealistic thing to put on yourself and actually exactly what you should be doing, but you have this internal uh, angst and wrestling match over it. So if we resist returning as if we might be betraying the relationship with the person who died. Uh, and then gradually hope comes through. I chose this slide on purpose because to me, when clouds are there and the sun breaks through and you can see the sun, sunbeams coming through it, that's God to me. That's God saying, darkness doesn't have the only word in this. Uh, the, as the old saying is, the sun's still there. Whether we see it or not, it's there. And this is just a reminder that darkness does not uh, have the final word. And then the last one, we struggle to affirm reality. Basically, you, you kind of come back to say, is this real? Did this really happen? And it's almost like you're cycling back through, at least occasionally, that it feels like it didn't really happen. So, when we do well to remember, when grief forces us to rethink ourselves, our roles, our capacities, our limitations, our relationships with others and with God. If you're with somebody who's in intense grief, this is where they are. And you trying to fix them is not going to do a whole lot to help that process. To understand they're trying to rework their whole theology, their whole family system. Uh, anything that they had assumed would always be a part of their lives. It's, it's now gone. It's taken away from them. It's, it's the robbedness that we talked about earlier. This is why it's a process. And this is why it's not easy. Which comes down to grieving as a process, one that takes time and then some more time. There is no fast forward button for intense grief. Read, uh, and I won't take time to do it, but the, the Genesis chapter 50, when uh, Joseph is, is second in command in, in Egypt, his father dies, and it says because of his relationship uh, with Pharaoh, he got to embalm uh, his father. Forty days it took for the embalming process. But then the, verse, the same verse says, and the nation of Egypt mourned for 70 days. And then Joseph goes, asks permission to bury his father back in the land of Canaan, 
which he had, he had been promised to do to his father. He said, yes, go, and they go in this caravan, which took a while to get there, and once they get there to the threshing floor of Atad, A-T-A-D, it says that they mourned so loudly for seven days that the, the people around it named it the mourning place of Egyptians. It's, it's there in any English Bible. It's, it's translated there for you. Seven days. Now, when was that? Well, we know it was not the next week. It wasn't even the next month. It was several months after the death that Joseph was expressing, Joseph and his family was expressing grief. And it was not just grief over the death, though that was a big part of it. I think there was also grief over the unfinished business, the, the, how the family had been ripped apart by some decisions, and how they'd been separated for the longest period of time. Uh, there's a lot of unfinished business in death that doesn't get to be addressed anymore because the person's gone. You, you can't reconcile, you can't make things right. And so sometimes the messiness of grief includes that. So trying to rush yourself or somebody else through it, I wish there was a fast forward button. If so, then we wouldn't have to have classes like this, right? Uh, but it's not there, we're not made that way. And then this one, being in grief isn't being crazy, it just feels like it. Let me go through this. This comes from my book, Disrupted, Finding God and Illness and Loss. I'll just go through quickly, and then we'll open it up. Sometimes people say, I know exactly how you feel. Well, the truth is, nobody knows exactly how you feel. I can talk to people uh, who are in the same situation, but they don't know how I feel, nor do I know how they feel. It's, it's, a, it's a uniqueness. If you're saying, I know the journey that you're on, that's different. But to say I know exactly how you feel is, is probably not the best thing to say. I prefer, I can only imagine what you're going through. To put it back on that griever, not on yourself. Because the first statement minimizes what the person's going through. I don't need to tell you anything else because you know exactly what I feel. Now that's not what's intended when it's said. This is not a, a malicious statement. It just comes out differently when you're on the hearing end of it. This one, I wrote an article on, I shared it with you, you can take it with you. Uh, at least he or she doesn't have to suffer anymore. I kept hearing this about Carol. Aren't you glad she's not suffering anymore? And the answer, the quick answer to that is absolutely yes. The long answer to that is, but I'm still here. And that doesn't answer, that doesn't take away me being here. Uh, I wouldn't bring her back the way she was. I don't want to have to hear about it again in eternity. Uh, you did what? You brought me back. Uh, but the, the fact is her not being in suffering anymore didn't take away the fact that she wasn't in my house anymore when I got home at night. It didn't address the fact that we did things together as a team for 33 years plus. So I, I actually preferred this. He or she suffered through a lot, didn't they? Just, just make the simple statement and let somebody do that. Now, sometimes death occurs instantly, so that, that's a different scenario. But in this case, if it's a long-term thing, this would apply. This is God's will. Uh, this, this one kind of gets to me. If, if you don't know this specifically from God, I'd, I'd be careful of making this statement. Uh, theologically, there's just some problems with speaking on behalf of God when God hasn't asked you to do that. It's, you know, the old, the old saying that well, God needed a flower in heaven, so he picked your loved one. Uh, it's like, 
surely that doesn't get said. Well, unfortunately it does. Uh, it's, it's not the best statement, but it's, it's there. It's, it's trying to put meaning on something that we really can't put meaning on. I'd rather hear about the promise that God will be with us no matter what. One comfort I find is God's promise never to abandon us, even in the worst of times. Now that I can hear. If you can explain it all you want, but it's not going to take away the fact that this person is no longer in my life. And the explanation does not comfort. If it did, uh, we would all be better off. How about this one? She wouldn't want you to grieve. Sometimes family members say this to each other. You've got to be tough. Uh, you got to be, if it's a child, let's say it's a daughter that loses her mother or a son that loses a father. I've heard it said to a six-year-old, you've got to be the man of the house now. You got to be the woman of the house now. Like what? How, how does that work? Uh, they wouldn't want you to grieve. They, well, how do you know that? I used to say that about me. I don't want a big deal made about me when I die. I just you know, I just want people to just go on living. And I thought, but I hope somebody misses me. You know. <laughs> so I kind of want it both ways. If, if that's that's not too unfair, is it? Uh, maybe it's better to say it's hard to say goodbye. Just leave it at that. Uh, you don't know what they would want for you to grieve or not. Uh, don't cry, you'll only make it worse. Again, scripture for that. Haven't found it. If you find one, we'll send it to me. Uh, this is more of a cultural thing, I think, and a family thing sometimes, or people trying to protect each other. Don't cry. Um, I think it's better to say tears are the best way to express inexpressible feelings. Tears speak loudly, sometimes much more than words. There's a lot that we deal with that words aren't going to do it anyway. Give people permission to cry. Just sit with them instead of trying to talk them out of it. This death is a great victory for God. That is a true statement and it also brings chills to me. Uh, even with the promise of resurrection, I'd rather hear, it's hard to give someone up. It's just a different way to say, you're dealing with something that's very difficult. God does have a plan to make this better in the long run, but right now, this hurts. You can't be angry with God. Well, again, uh, I've gotten aware when people tell me that, you know, sometimes people that are diagnosed, newly diagnosed, say with cancer in the hospital, they say, well, one thing I know is you can't ask God why, you can't question why. And I say, who taught you that? They say, well, that's true, isn't it? <laughs> Somewhere we've gotten the message that we're not supposed to question why. I think it's a very natural reaction. We are human beings. We can't deny our humanity just because we're people of faith. In fact, the two are so intertwined, you can't split them apart. We are who we are, and God is good with that. God understands even when you're upset. Again, a loving parent doesn't stop loving their child just because they're upset with their circumstances. How about this one? At least you have other family members. By the way, anytime I say the word at least, it's probably not a good statement. <laughs> you're minimizing what you're about to say. You know, I've heard uh, parents that have lost a child, do you have other children? Well, it, it may be a good question in some ways, but what does that have to do with the one that's gone? You do not replace the person that's dead with somebody else. It just doesn't work that way, at least emotionally. Um, it's good to have other family members, but you can't use that as a replacement. 
So there's no way to replace the one that you've lost, is there? That validates that person that is gone and validates that them in their heart. Don't you think it's time to get on with living your life? Yeah, and I think it's time for you to get on with living yours too. That's what I have. <laughs> Maybe somewhere else would be good. Uh, it's amazing how sometimes people, and this is true, it's, I know it's true for widows and widowers, you can't just stay sad. You've got to get out there. You've got to be social. You don't want to be for a while. If it's been a close relationship and you're used to working as a team, the things that used to bring you pleasure to be with other family members or, I mean, other people socially, it just it doesn't work as well. I, I found that out firsthand. The small group I was in, all couples, we'd been with them a long time in our church, and I got to where I just could not go. And I felt terrible. I felt guilt and all that good stuff about it. These were people I loved dearly, but they were sitting around talking about couple things. Every one of them. They weren't attacking me at all. They were just being themselves. It just wasn't my world at that moment. Uh, that may not match everybody, but for me, it, it came really home hard. Sometimes we have no idea what it's like for somebody to be in that world that's going through grief and they're trying to act like things are normal, but inside they're not. Maybe it's better to say everyone has to grieve in their own way. If you want a unique way to deal with grief, then you're not going to find it. Everybody is wired differently. You were taught differently. In this one, time heals all wounds. That sounds good. It's really not true. Time is just time. Time lessens the pain, but you'll always have him or her with you. One of the things that people in grief, if it's a close relationship, fear is that they're going to forget the person, forget what they sounded like, what they look like, and that I'm going to be so detached from them that they won't have meaning in my life. That's a real fear the first few months uh, of a death. Um, and so time is not necessarily your friend when you're thinking that way. Finally, when in doubt, listen. You know, God really did give us two of these and one mouth. Maybe we ought to look in the mirror once in a while to remind ourselves just sitting with somebody in grief is a gift that not everybody's willing to give. People of faith ought to be able to sit with folks and just be with them and do what needs to be done without taking, trying to take the grief away. Go back to John 11. There was a group of people with Mary and Martha that were just there to be with them. That was, their job was to, to be there. It wasn't Mary or Martha's job to be hospitable. They were there to grieve. So therefore, you know, when one of them gets up to go meet Jesus, the people thought she's going to go to the grave because that's what she would have done as a griever, go to the grave to visit. Uh, but instead, she was going to meet Jesus. Just to be there and to listen. And rather than to talk somebody out of their feelings, just let them be who they are. And then offer the word of hope that comes to you with God's help. I have just a few newsletters from my ministry. If you would like one, uh, you may have that. Uh, this is my contact information, and this website has uh, quite a few of the articles that you have here and others that deal with this, as well as how to visit the sick and all kinds of other good stuff. This is a work that's out of Houston. We also have a work uh, chaplain in Dallas and Fort Worth and in Austin, uh, and we have trained volunteers that go and visit all the hospitals uh, representing the Churches of Christ. So that's a synopsis of me. I appreciate you very much for being here. It's been nice to be with you. Thank you. Thank you.